G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, G'day, BVRs. Got some good news for you. The third episode of Australian Story is going to air very, very soon. So stay tuned to the Bean and Belly Road and 16 Media social media pages and you'll be updated there. I thought I'd put the first episode of Tear It Down, my new podcast about all things mental health here on the Bean and Belly Road channel just because I'd love you guys to listen to it, get your feedback. It features Matt O'Kine. He's an iconic Australian comedian, actor, producer. So let me know what you think. And I hope you have a great day. A quick disclaimer before we start. Tear It Down is a podcast about all things mental health. Therefore, it may contain coarse language, adult themes, and subject matter that may be distressing to some listeners, such as suicide, self-harm, and references to drug and alcohol abuse. Please, listen at your own discretion. If you yourself are struggling you can reach out to Lifeline on 131114. Welcome to the very first episode of Tear It Down, tearing the stigma down of mental health one story at a time. I'm Jamie Poltz and I'm very excited to share this podcast with you. I'm so passionate about mental health and I hope you get something out of these conversations just like I did. It's not always going to be tragic and sad. Some guests will share their funny, weird, wild and outrageous stories. And P.S. For this first episode, I made a full rookie error and didn't record my part through my microphone. I've got an awesome mic and great recording equipment, but I guess you have to press record in all the right places. So unfortunately, after the intro, you'll hear my voice as recorded through the computer audio. Facepalm emoji. My apologies, but thanks for sticking with me. And I do promise that I will up my game to the standard that you are used to from 610 Media in future episodes. Our first guest is none other than Matt O'Kine. Matt O'Kine is a comedian, an actor, a writer, a published author, a rapper, a singer, a podcaster, and a father. Quite the rap sheet, Matt. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm t- I'm, I think I'm going to strike off comedian from that list. I haven't done stand-up for about a year and a half, so I reckon it's time to, to retire officially. You reckon? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, much, it's, it's more difficult. I've been doing it for 16 years. I'm always going to miss it. I just I'm gonna put it on pause for now. That's what I'll say. Mm. Cause uh I've been enjoying working on the music. I've been enjoying working on TV. And you know, the, the thing about comedy is I can always whenever I decide, I can always just say, All right, well, I'm gonna do a show and then just do it. I don't have to check with anyone, I don't have to get approval from a network, I don't have to, you know, beg, borrow, and steal for funding for the script or for the pro- 
production, I can just say, you know what? I'm doing a show next week and I just do one. So I'll, I'll say I'm not doing it for now, but give me a couple of years and I'll be like, oh, itching, itching to but, get back out. But like maybe it's not comedy per se, but I mean your podcast, Matt and Alex, which is a daily show, that's hilarious. Your book yeah, was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not doing stand-up, I guess, is what I should yeah, say. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, everything good. I do, I try to, I don't know, I try to balance with it. I try to have fun with it, but I also want to do serious stuff as well. You know, I, I got a little bit uh over that sort of people love putting you in a box, and once they see that comedy box, suddenly they get they almost get annoyed when you try to not be funny, you know? They're like, what the hell is this? Why, why, why was your show so serious? It's like, well, because life's serious sometimes, you know? Like you never, you never set out, you never leave the house one day thinking, oh, my, my pet's going to get run over today, you know? You're having a good day, everything's great, and then boom, your pet <laughs> gets run over. And life changes like that, you know? It so does. it's like, why can't what I do change like that? Yeah, exactly. So do you feel pressure like when you go on a show and someone introduces you as, as a comedian uh, and it's not like mental health topics, do you feel pressure to be funny? Yeah, and I'm working harder. I'm working harder every day to just try and be myself in those situations. So, um, you know, the, the, the mentality behind it always comes down to if you are on a show, you're usually there to promote something. And so you're depending on what you're promoting – that tends to be what you end up, the persona you end up facilitating at the time, you know? So you go on a radio segment, you've got five minutes and the whole point of you being on that radio segment is to sell tickets to your comedy show. So you, you start thinking, oh God, how am I best going to advertise what the experience that people are going to be getting, you know? But I mean, sometimes you just don't feel like it. You've been lying next to your daughter's cot singing this old man for the last... <laughs> three hours since four in the morning you know you haven't slept or anything you have an argument with your partner you there's nothing funny about any of it and then you then you got to go on some breakfast radio show and and make people laugh so definitely at times you know i mean that was one of the hardest things in terms of an actually like example of it i started working at triple j 2014 doing the breakfast show with alex dyson and you know getting up at four o'clock every morning to go in to work by five and then to start the show at six but that, in that period, 2014, I was having, you know, I was having a, a relationship breakdown that um, has since, you know, gone on to become the basis of a of a stand up show and a TV show called The Other Guy. You know, there was there was um, infidelity and deception and all this sort of stuff, and and this was someone who I'd been with for nine years, and so you're having these like sleepless nights huge discussions you know tears you're crying about the the loss of this relationship and then you've suddenly got to just like switch it on six o'clock boom as soon as that intro comes on hey here we are um and that 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 was that certainly that was certainly just a struggle you know that that was a hard yeah hard slog and it's something that people wouldn't realise when they are driving to work, listening to the radio. They wouldn't think about the other person getting up and planning the show and what it takes behind the scenes. You know, I'm certainly one of those people. I just listened to you and I didn't even think about all the other stuff. No, and I mean, that's the, I guess that's what being professional is, you know, in a way. I mean, sometimes it's it's good to talk about the issues that are going on, but other times it is just as good to, you know, sometimes Sometimes those moments at work where you are laughing and where you are having fun with your co-hosts 
artists and interviewing bands and those are the moments of reprieve that you get where you're not thinking about this terrible situation you know it's your opportunity to actually let it all sit behind you for 10 seconds but i mean if if everyone sort of it's a tough one because it is really important to talk to get your emotions out but it's also really important to talk about them in a safe space and with people who can understand you you know if every single person was wearing their emotions on their sleeves at every time it would be a pretty overwhelming place you know if you went in to get a coffee at work you know a coffee at your local cafe and I don't know, people start off loading all this stuff onto yeah. you, you'd be like, wow, it's really, it'd be quite confronting if, you know, some person's crying into the coffee they're making for you and you're like, I just, I just came here for a flat white and now I'm suddenly a therapist. But then at the same time, it's really important that people communicate and talk to people. So exactly. yeah, it was, it certainly taught me a lot. Well, let's hear a bit about you before we dive into some mental health stuff. So firstly, uh, you've got a TV show called The Other Guy that's on Stan. I strongly recommend watching that. It's hilarious, but it's it's almost autobiographical. Biography, whatever you say that word. Isn't Biographical. It? Biographical. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you can make up words. I mean, you're, you're, when you're in the media, you can do whatever you want, you know. Shakespeare yeah. did it all the time. I don't want to mispronounce anything because I hear how Alex Dyson <laughs> takes that. um so yeah your show is hilarious and your book which i've just finished um being black and chicken and chips that is just one of the best books i've ever read it's so funny it's sad it's everything you did it so well i didn't know i knew you were an actor and a writer but i didn't know you were so good at plotting and putting the story together like that and i thought it was a, a true story but you said it was more of a kind of a walks the line of fact and fiction between your life. Yeah, that's it. Didn't want to get any, didn't want to let the truth get in the way of a good story. Um, also, you know, you don't want to tell other people's stories. So it was, it was, I was pretty trying my best to, to only tell my story in the moments that really held up and mattered to me. Um, but you know, I learned a lot of writing on the first season of the other guy. That's, that was a big step for me. And, um, a guy called Greg Waters script produced that first season. He really taught me a lot about drama and, um, and yeah, what you should give your characters, what you shouldn't give your characters. It was, I mean, it was a real life step that I, in terms of my career development, making that TV show. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy. I had a, I would, I was if I didn't have a breakdown at the end of that show, then it was certainly something that resembled one. Yeah. So it was, that was a learning curve for me very much. Yeah. That, I mean, the amount of work that would go into that would be, and the pressure and the deadlines and, you know, trying to be uh, a producer and a writer and everything to these people and they're paying for it, aren't they? So that they're paying for a product. Yeah, that's it. And they're expecting things. And then, you know, you're getting letters from people um, that you know saying, don't you dare tell this story about me and all this sort of stuff. And and you're like, you're trying not to. You're like, I don't want to tell tell a story about you. I'm trying trying, trying to tell my story. Um, And there's legal threats. And it was, you know, it it was the first time I'd done it. I'd done anything like that before. It was, um, it was, it was scary, you know, um, and then, yeah, like there's millions of dollars on the line and people are expecting you to deliver and then people people don't know what to expect. Is it going to be some sort of laugh out loud sitcom or is it going to be, a um, you know, some sort of dramedy where there's laughter and tears? And yeah, it was certainly, certainly something that I had to explore 
my emotions with the full scope of my emotions as I write, as I was writing it. And that's something that I did with, you know, with the book as well. There were times there where I was literally crying, writing it because that's where the good stuff comes from. You know, the moment you start moving away from those kind of feelings, that's when you start realizing that you're actually, you're not doing your job as a writer because you're kind of not, telling your truth it's so funny you know what i was having a real struggle with this script recently and i bumped into delta goodrum of all people outside um there's like near the sony building in sydney and um i just i was like literally walking in front of her car and she like stopped the car and and i was like oh hey and um and she got out and you know we're talking about just having a chat about stuff and she and i sort of said yeah it's just been a weird year i've been just struggling to figure out this script situation and she said yeah i i have found that too i've i was editing a video or something maybe she's recording a song but she said you know i was just struggling to find my emotional truth with it and i remember at the time thinking like that's such a delta thing to say like my emotional truth and kind of like i was like <laughs> oh yeah we're all right that's sort of that sounds like a little hippie-ish sort of thing. But then I was like, the more I've thought about it, the more as a phrase, I'm like, no, that was actually spot on. And it's such an important facility or no, it's such an, it's such an important uh, part of you to facilitate when it comes to writing that emotional truth. And are exactly. you actually being honest to yourself when you're putting your words on a page or honest to the situation and to the characters? So I have to say thank you, Delta. All right, there you <laughs> That's go. awesome. So when, I mean, obviously your book is it's hilarious, but there's a lot of parts that are quite like cringy and awkward and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Do people ask you, is there a common, without giving away any of the plot, is there a common question people ask you like what was real? And what oh, was yeah. Like? My my uncle messaged me the other day. He's like, oh, I just finally read the book. Did you actually do that with your dick in your dad's <laughs> dental van? I'm like, no, hey. <laughs> that's, uncle, the one I, that's the one I want to know stop. about. <laughs> yeah, everyone wants to know these stuff. <laughs> did I yeah. twist my balls? Did I stick my dick in a dental vacuum? No, look, just, yeah. it doesn't matter if I did it or not, okay? Just enjoy the book. You can't confirm or deny Oh, boy, yeah. I refuse to. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So, I mean, did you come from like what you'd call humble beginnings or how would you describe your upbringing, Matt? No, look, I was I was really thankful uh, and lucky to and privileged really to be to grow up in complete middle-class suburbia, Brisbane. Um, the sort of middle-class that you kind of is, you don't realise how lucky it is because at the time it feels so mundane and boring or you know you wish there was more or you wish you were one of the rich kids or whatever but realistically there was a, I, you know I was given a lot of opportunity especially seeing my dad from where he began which was not that at all you know we're talking um Ghana Accra um a very humble part of Ghana you know not that it wasn't I mean, there's obviously very rich people in, in Ghana and all throughout Africa as well, but, you know, certainly dad was not of that sort of beginning and there were 10 of them sleeping in the same room and that sort of stuff, you know, and uh, for him to have gotten to where he is today is something that I will forever be proud of 
um, and grateful for what he's passed on to me to then hopefully continue um, my trajectory. Um, and so I, yeah, it, it, but it, you know, it was, it was, it was nice. Yeah. It was because, nice. Because you mentioned uh, a few times in, well, in the other guy and also in your book, I'm not sure what, what, how much of it was um, accurate or, or whatever, but you talk about your dad telling you or telling this Mike character um, that you have a target on your back because, you know, you are different and you have different coloured skin to a lot of the other people um, and just keep your mouth shut and head down basically. How much of that was a part of your life? Like how much did you experience? Because obviously I didn't have to experience that being white myself. Um, yeah. But how much did that play a part in your adolescence? Oh, look, as a teenager, I mean, I have, I can think of a couple of situations in which the line for me feels extremely blurry between whether it was luck, happenstance or bad luck, um, happenstance or, or actual racism. Um, there's, you know, I have been arrested more times than my friends. In fact, I've been arrested twice when my friends have not been arrested at all. Um, And often we've all been together when I've been arrested. Is it because I have a loud mouth? Possibly. Um, Is it just a bad luck that that I've gotten into situations or just something's happened in those situations where I have suddenly been the person that stands out the most to police? Or is there something underlying in those particular situations? I don't know. Um, and I'm not necessarily willing to say, sometimes I, I, I'm not willing to say definitively what it is because my opinion flips quite regularly. What I will say is though, I remember one time getting pulled up outside the casino trying to catch a cab home and um they the police officers told me to move along and i said look i'm just trying to get home i'm literally waiting for a cab here they said you can't get a cab here it's not a loading zone uh it's not a taxi zone you're gonna you can go like go away and i was like please i'm just waiting for a cab I'm, i'm gonna be off the street in a second um and then that argument just escalated until i got arrested right because they were like you're gonna have to move and i was like and i eventually i was like f off i'm just trying to get home then i was swearing and then of course they're like you're swearing and then i get arrested and blah blah now that's fine i understand that that's what happened then of course you get tied up into the system you're going to court for all this stuff when i was literally wanting to get home in the first place i wasn't even trying to do anything i just wanted to get home Hmm. now you're a police you're an ex-police officer right yeah. Now, so you probably have an opinion about this and I'm sure you've experienced so many things like this before. So I, on one hand at times I'm like, well, I can see why, you know, I was disagreeing. I did end up swearing all this sort of stuff. And then on the other hand, I'm like, I literally just wanted to get home. And mm-hmm. that's where I thought the best chance to get a cab was. Another time I got um, pulled over by some police officers for, I don't know. It was something. It was outside the front of a pub being loud or whatever. And they put me in the back of the car. We had a chat and then they were like, look, you need to go home right now. And they dropped me around the corner and they let me out and I walked home. And that was that. And so two different ways to deal with the same situation. That's why I'm, I'm never going to say, oh, 
all cops are bad or that it was right. So it was literally mm. just like, what was the situation there? Did, did I get the wrong person at the wrong time? You know, was there a better mm. way for all of us to deal with it? So many different things. But, you know, my dad recently got, got um, pulled up at the shopping center and stopped by police. And this is in the middle of a shopping center. And they asked him for all his details and they stopped him because someone had been reported shoplifting that matched his description. And this is in the middle of the shopping center and so many people walking around looking at him, you know, and suddenly it looks like he's done something wrong. And he was furious about it. He was really, really upset because he did feel like he'd been targeted in, in that kind of racial way. And this is as a 70 year old guy, you know, just trying to go shopping. So there has been that for both of us over our lives. And he has never ever said, oh, this is, p p the police are racist or Australia is racist. There's never, he's never ever said anything like that ever in my life. But there are moments where he, you know, where in my upbringing and I've noticed them myself and I'll probably say it to my kids in that there are instances where you might feel like this is actually a factor that is causing you attention yeah no I mean, definitely and you know the other thing i want to talk about was the fact that your mother died when you were like 12 was it and so your father is from ghana which is the west coast of africa is that correct yeah. and um so so you're half african and where's your mum originally from so mum is an uh, Australian uh, and her mum was Australian and then her mum was Scottish. And her, actually my mum's dad was German as well, but I don't know anything about him. Okay. So that Nazi comment in the, uh, the book, is that where that comes from? <laughs> well, it, I, I can't say anything for certain because, one, I don't know if he's alive and two, I don't know whether if I do say things, they are possibly defamatory. So <laughs> I don't, I will not make any definitive yeah. statements um, because I don't know who that person is. But what I have written in my book about a fictional character is my understanding of okay. the situation. Because when you read the back of your book, it says, you know, like you're a you know, a young person trying to navigate his way in the world with dealing with grief and also with the fact that you're losing your identity through your, you know, your, your African culture, which you're, you're missing. Is that something that, that you struggled with? Like, I mean, in that time of your life, like you, you, you're trying to find out who you are and, you know, you, you're half African and, and your mum's dying and trying to identify yourself? Oh, yeah. And I mean, the cultural rejection that you feel that I felt growing up in middle class sort of mostly white Brisbane, um, as a kid, you know, you, you, you just feel it was it, the African bit was embarrassing at times, you know, you felt, you felt like it was so, it was so foreign and I didn't like eating the food. I didn't like wearing the clothes. I just thought it was, yeah, like it was, it, it didn't feel like me. Um, and, and that was really just looking back on it, kind of a, just a rejection of culture that I think probably a lot of migrant kids uh, go through and especially probably ones back, you know, 25 years ago when you didn't see it on screens, you didn't hear it in our media, in our culture, in our pop 
pop culture, it just wasn't a thing. So um, thankfully now you see it more. You see more brown people on TV. You see, you you hear more about different cultures. You, you taste more of different cultures, you know, yeah. um, on the streets. So yeah, uh, hopefully there's a bit more embrace that happens. I mean, one of the fears that I have is, as a dad will be that my daughter will kind of see me as different because I've got dark skin compared to, you know, her mom and the other kids at school. And, but I mean, thankfully there are, there are so many more mixed race kids now, you know, that I don't think it'll be different. And certainly the younger generations are a bit, uh, are much more embracing of different, different things, you know, let's hope. The show will return after this quick break. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Were you in grade eight when your mum died? Yeah, two days before my thirteenth birthday. Uh, it was Good Friday, mm. so that's in the book. I mean, I, I kept the dates almost spot on in the book. So that was um, pretty pretty heartbreaking because I know you said that the part where you saw her in the shower was was true. Um, that was a really hard part of the book to listen to, and especially being a twelve year old, it's just too much to handle. Almost. Um, how did you cope with that grief? How did you cope with that loss? Oh, badly, you know, like, uh, I would say in, in the, in the classic way that men dealt with a lot of things back in the day, um, just by bottling it up and pretending it didn't happen really. I mean, I remember going to a funeral and not wanting to cry and like, you know, being all smiles and literally smiling and, and, and trying to make jokes with people and stuff like that because I didn't want anyone to sort of see that I was hurt or upset by this situation. Yeah. I remember getting an, an, a letter from one of my mom's friends a couple of weeks later saying, hi, you know, I hope you're doing well. I've been thinking about you. I, I saw you at the funeral and I noticed that you were sort of laughing and joking and I, you know, I'm just wanting to let you know that you don't need to put on a front or anything like that, that it's okay to be upset. I remember getting really angry at the time when I got that message you know oh, you don't know me i'm dealing with this fine i'm not going to get hurt by it um and looking back on it it's embarrassing i feel embarrassed mm. to think that i was so desperate to pretend that everything was all right um when actually my whole world was falling apart and the person that i was closest to in the whole world was never going to be around anymore and i felt a lack of guidance and i'd felt i'd felt abandoned in a way you know there's a certain element of selfishness that i felt against my mum for not looking after herself more you know which i think is it's uh, completely unfair because i understand more and more now how you know just because yeah just because someone doesn't you know check their body every single i mean look Cancer can happen to people, mm. all right? Uh, even if they find a lump or something, it doesn't mean that they're being negligent. But I certainly felt like that was the case for a long time. And look, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't, I'm not, I'm not game enough again, like to say that it was definitely 
a negligent thing to not get it checked out because I also know that people find lumps and they they forget about them or they've they've found five or ten lumps before and have gotten them all checked out and they've all been benign or nothing and so they're like it's probably the same thing you know I don't know so yeah it was certainly a uh, confusing time for me and I think I took it out I think I it manifested in a lot of aggression and uh, rebellion as I headed into my teenage years which is pretty tokenistic really yeah yeah definitely you're not you're not alone there I think a lot of people in that situation would have done the same thing and felt the same emotions as well. Did you have any situations as you were growing up that put you into a different uh, mental space? No, but I do know, I do know people who have had you know parents die and they they rebelled. You know, I think it's, and they were they were angry at their parents, and it's just a, a normal emotion. I think you just yeah. As a kid, is that where your mental health journey started, or is that something that you just call grief and and you moved on, and then mental health hit you later on? Do you know what? When my mental health journey genuinely first started was when I started doing my Bachelor of Fine Arts in acting. So I was, for the very first time in my life, um, witness to people using their emotions to portray, you know, characters and tell stories on stage. I remember going into watching these classes and people these actors doing these exercises and bursting into tears and all this sort of stuff. And I remember kind of being quite impressed by how, how well they could use their emotions. And I remember thinking, Oh, I want to be able to be a good actor and be able to do that. So on the first day of drama school, we did these, what's called a being workout, right? We, we studied under this um, method called Eric Morris right. method. Um, and it's all about exploring your emotions, breaking yourself down, breaking your emotions down sort of one by one, feeling what, understanding how you feel in each state. You know, what do you feel like when you're scared? Think about how your body feels. Think about what's going through your head. Think about what you're, you can taste in your mouth, you know? Um, so it's trying to figure out those emotions so that when you need to portray them on screen, you can then facilitate those. Right. Um, and the very first day I remember we did a, being workout or some sort of workout where you know I stood in front of the room and my acting teacher said um all right I want you to talk to someone in the room you know tell us talk to someone who's important to you uh, and I well, I said well you know my mom died when I was 12 and he was like okay great we'll talk put her in the room and so I kind of thought oh, okay this is a bit weird but sure and I and I imagined her in the room and I was looking at her and and then he's like, okay, now what would you like to say to her? And I didn't know what to say. I'd never really thought about saying anything to her. And then he said, well, just start by saying, um, you know, talking to you right now makes me feel. And so I said, talking to you right now makes, right now makes me feel. And then I, I just couldn't say anything more and I just burst into tears. And I'd never actually cried about it properly, you know. Mm. And it was the first time that I'd actually allowed myself to feel upset about what had happened. And by that stage, that was about five years after it happened. So in hindsight, you know, it felt like a long time, but in hindsight now, five years goes by pretty quickly when you, oh, you, know, yeah. when you get to our age. And so it was still pretty raw for me. And I, and I, especially when I hadn't dealt with it at all. So for that whole year, you know, I really explored my emotions and constantly asked myself, 
how am I feeling right now? Why am I feeling like that? Am I being as honest as possible to myself? It, am, you know, am I feeling, am I feeling scared? Do I feel vulnerable right now? And mm-hmm. all of these things that I used to put band-aids over, like the, you know, the bravado, the getting into fights with any guy that kind of, you know, got in my way or all that sort of stuff, going to parties, trying to be the toughest guy in the room, that all just fell away because it was it was really all just trying to put a hard cover or a shell over what was really just a wounded little boy. So your experience with mental health, is it like depression, anxiety, and you've had a couple of burnouts or a burnout, you said? Yeah, so, I mean, definitely I would say anxiety is probably more of uh, an issue that I deal with than depression. You know, I mean, I remember being told like, and this is just the very basic look at it, but, you know, worrying about the past is depression and worrying about the future is anxiety. Um, And that's kind of... I certainly worry more about the future than I do about the past. I'm, I'm kind of pretty good at going, well, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. That's fine. Um, and, you know, but I do certainly get anxious about, oh, you know, just this feeling of uncertainty, of not knowing, of, oh, am I, do people not like me? Have I offended some people? Like, you know, I... I do. I, I've, I have got. I go through those sort of things. Am I not good at my job? Am I doing a terrible job? Are people disappointed in me? All those kind of things. I, I would constantly go through, and I and I would say it's not a day that I don't battle those thoughts. Um, and often I have to just sort of stop myself and say, just do that sort of checklist thing, of like, hold on, what do you have? Do you have a home right now? Do you have money? Do you have? family and friends think about each person that you could reliably call your friend and your family and does do the people outside of that really matter and if there is someone within those people that don't that you think doesn't like you or isn't happy with you right now or anything then you should address that with them now and if they're a friend then they will be able to talk it through with you and so once I do all that stuff you know, I tend to be able to bring myself back to a sense of, no, actually what you're doing right now is just trying to trick yourself into thinking there's a problem and there's not. So just, so just don't worry and try to just keep watching this episode of Bluey with your daughter and it's all good. (laughs) So, you know, there's, there's always that, that at play, the burnout after the, 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 after the, um, filming the TV show was, is also, you know, it kind of, I mean, I, I tried to capture it in one of my songs recently. I wrote a new EP um, under my music project, Boilermakers, and the very first song off that, Can I Be Enough For You, sort of talks about being, you know, feeling rock bottom, 27th floor, Montreal. That was after I just, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd done it to myself, really. I'd worked, I'd, I'd worked too hard and worried for too long about this show, and I wasn't prepared mentally to do one more lap. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say that, you know, when you're making a TV show, there's actually, and you know what, this is, this is literally anything. This is when you make anything. All right. There's four stages of the, of, for me, this is my theory. So you've got development of the idea, the conception of the idea, the development, which is what the idea is and how you plan on executing it. Okay. Okay. Then that's stage one. 
Uh, in a script, with writing scripts, it's, it's, that's when you're writing it. That's what, what's the story going to be about? What's the story I'm going to say? Then you got the execution of it. How am I actually going to make this? And in TV, that's the production of it. Okay. Um, and then you've got the, and that includes post-production. That includes, you know, putting it all together. That includes making the, the, the poster, all that sort of stuff. Then you've got the third stage of it, which is the marketing of it, right? How, how am I going to tell everyone that I've made this thing? Okay. And then the fourth one, the fourth stage is um, you've got to, is the audience feedback stage. So how have people received what I've made mm-hmm. and how can I take their feedback and implement it into the next thing I make where I implement their thoughts into my development of the next thing, right? And so that's just the cycle that I work on constantly. And it was somewhere between the production stage, the execution stage and the marketing stage where I stopped. I, I forgot that I needed to keep going. And so suddenly all of this, all of these people were going, Hey, we need you to do this. We need you to do this interview. Why can we get a check on this, um, on the film clip that's about to go out? We need to make sure that this is good for a trailer. We need to do this. We need to do that. And instead of doing all that, I had a massive bender at Splendor and just spent three days getting wasted, going to see all these bands, thinking like celebrating, thinking that I'd finished the race. Mm-hmm. It was literally like I had, I had put my hands up. You know, you see those video clips of like the motorcycle rider putting his hand up and then yeah. like cars go past him yeah, and they're yeah. like, you haven't finished. <laughs> yeah. And so I did that, right? Yeah. I did that. And I ended up, I ended up, like having to go straight from Splendor to Montreal where I then needed to, you know, promote this show or basically be the best version of myself on stage so that I could have meetings and tell people, Hey, I've got this show. I've, I'm doing like, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to make this big transition from stage into screen and everything. And I, um, I just couldn't do it. I just, I just hit this mental wall and I've never hit that mental wall before. I didn't want to leave my room. I felt scared. I felt really embarrassed ashamed i was i didn't want to do any of the work i didn't Mm. like the product that i was making at the time not not the actual tv show but all the things around it all the little clips and socials i felt really like i had done a bad job at them and and then i and then i was like yeah then i had to do my show for this for the you know tv this tv spot and i just I just bombed. I hated it. I just didn't do well. I felt really out of place and I felt embarrassed by my set. And yeah, right. I walked away from that whole experience. I felt like I'd gone to the Olympics and I'd, and I'd not even false started. I, I felt like I'd just come last in my first heat and, I'd, and I had just not put in a good race, you know? And so yeah. that was something that I, after that, I came back realizing that how important it is to pace yourself mm-hmm. and how important it is to look after yourself throughout every stage of the process and making sure that you actually have gas in the tank to complete, <clears throat> to go all the way to the end instead of burning out in the production execution phase. When you say you bombed, did people um, pick up on it or did you just feel bad in yourself when it actually went fine? I just didn't do well. You know, there wasn't yeah. much laughter. It was pretty quiet in the room. It was, yeah. it was just tough. It wasn't even like spectacularly bombed where people were like yelling and talking over <laughs> me. Like, it was just like... <laughs> It was just completely forgettable and that's almost worse, you know? Yeah. It's a comedian's, I'm, I mean, I'm not a comedian, but that's a worse nightmare for one, eh? 
Just no, yeah, like no when ass. people people say people say, oh, you know, is it bad when um you get heckles or you know, have you ever really bombed at a gig? You know, I'm like people booing, people heckling, that's bad. But at least they're listening, they're reacting. Yeah. The worst thing in the world is when literally the whole audience is just talking as if you don't exist. Yeah. And it's happened a couple of times and you just realize like, I'm nothing. I am actually, no, I, do, I don't even exist. Mark and Trump. so, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and <laughs> yeah, you'd do it if you didn't have to pay for a replacement mic. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that's always the worst. But no, I just didn't do well. And I, I wasn't, and, and more, than, more than like, you know, what you said, I wasn't happy with it. I wasn't happy with it. And that's the worst thing. Did you get, did you have to get help at all from a professional or a therapist? Uh, I haven't. No. And, you know, I probably should, I guess I tend not to purely because I, um, I do tend to do a lot of introspection and I do tend to do a lot of talking to a lot of people about a lot of the issues that I'm feeling. Um, so I just haven't, I haven't felt like I needed to, although I've got, you know, certainly been close a couple of times where I've been like, you know what, I probably should. Um, I certainly feel like I should have back when my mum died um, and I remember seeing a psychologist once, like one session before she died where he kind of, this doctor had kind of told me, you know, she, she things are looking pretty bad with her and stuff. And it's in the book as well. I got angry at him. I just, in my yeah. head, I was like, I hate this guy. Why can't he just tell me that she's going to die? I'm sick of yeah. him lying to me. So yeah, I would have, I, I probably should have gotten it earlier. Um, but at the moment I try, try to do my best to just be open and honest with myself and talk to, you know, my partner and as many people as possible about what's actually going on in my life and my feelings. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, if you got supportive people around you and that's, that's just as good, but you don't feel like ashamed or anything to, to talk about it with your friends, Like you don't, it doesn't bother you to bring up those issues. You said you're quite happy to talk no. about emotions. No. Yeah. And I think it's really important to. Is, and I would yeah. encourage everyone to just talk as openly as possible all the times. And that's what, one of the reasons why I say so much, you know, embarrassing stuff in my books and on the radio and in, in everything I do about me. And where a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things I've said that I thought I would never, ever admit or, you know, talk about, but we're all human. And if me admitting some of my faults and the things that I've done wrong and how stupid I've been at times makes someone feel better about what they've done and you know more accepting of themselves then that's that's all i would want i don't really you know i don't i'm not i don't and i don't ever really want to judge anyone unless they're actually no. harming other people then i don't have no interest in judging anyone for whatever they think so i hope no one does the same for me no, no and we're mate. always so much better we're almost yeah. so whenever we hear someone just telling the truth i'm always like oh that's that's much better yeah than than keep i'm glad that they told me you know yeah yeah no 100 percent hundred percent. Uh, I was actually reading your book during um, a mask, mandatory mask um, phase. You know, we had to wear masks for a while for this bloody COVID. Yeah. And I was at um, Chipmunks with my kids playing in the playground and um, <laughs> I got the mask on and I'm reading and the part where oh, one of the parts was so funny that I laughed out loud, but, you know, you got a mask on, you can't really see someone's expression, so it would have looked really funny. Oh, yeah. I, 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 think, <laughs> I think it was the part where you... Um, the lifesaver with the farts. Uh, I mean, that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite bit as well. I love that yeah. bit. That's so funny. Yeah, the the, the lifesaver who has to <laughs> fart into people's mouths to save their lives because his lips have been sewn shut. Man, 
No, I laughed myself when I when I was writing that. I was like, <laughs> yeah. and fart jokes are hard to pull off. If they <laughs> if they're not funny, they're not funny. And that yeah, that was so good. You nailed that one. But, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, look, that's a personal highlight for me. That's always going to be in that. That will exist in writing forever. You know <laughs> that, that <laughs> stupid story. That's awesome. Hey, look, I so much appreciate your time, Matt. Um, you know, you're you're a iconic Australian person and uh, personality that you know most of us know and have loved since 2014 when you graced us with uh, Triple J's mornings. And you know, I've, I follow you ever since. So thank you so much for giving us this time. No, thank you, Jamie. And like I said, big fan of uh, Ben and Valley Road. So congrats on that and uh, congrats on this new one as well. Uh, awesome, mate. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Take care, eh? You too. Cheers, mate. So that's it, our very first episode of Tear It Down. Thanks again to Matt O'Kine for coming on the show and sharing his personal story. If you want to check out some of Matt O'Kine's work, such as his book, his TV show, his podcast, and his music. I will put that information in the show notes, so please head on down there and have a look. If this episode has brought up any concerns for you in regards to your own mental health, know that there are services available to help you, such as Lifeline. You can reach them at 131114. Tear It Down is a 610 Media production. A special thanks to Audio Technica and Zoom for supporting me throughout my podcast journey. Our cover art was done by my talented sister-in-law, Courtney Woods. The music for this show was produced by Bubba Beats. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and also follow us on Apple Podcasts. Yes, it used to be subscribe and I've been saying it for years, but now it's follow. Why fix something if it's not broken? Anyway... Now you have to click the little plus icon at the top right-hand side of the Apple Podcast app. Follow us on Instagram, at 610 Media Group for Instagram, and at 610 Media on Facebook. And also, Tear It Down has social media now, so you can go to at Tear It Down Podcast for Instagram and at Tear It Down Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to get in touch, you can head to 610mediagroup.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Or send an email to info at 610mediagroup.com. That's S-I-X and the number 10. Cheers.